This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives by Donna Murch. Drawing its title from one of America's foremost revolutionaries, this collection of thought-provoking essays by award-winning Black Panther Party scholar Donna Murch explores how social protest is challenging our current system of state violence and mass incarceration, exploring how a youth-led political movement has emerged in recent years to challenge the bipartisan consensus on punishment, and looking to the future through a redistributive, queer, and feminist lens. As Kianga Yamada Taylor puts it, Donna Murch is one of the sharpest, most incisive, and elegant writers on racism, radicalism, and struggle today. This is a smart and sophisticated book that should be read and studied by everyone in search of answers to the profound crises that continue to confront this country. Find Asada Taught Me at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, by Donna Murch. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. You likely know that the United States incarcerates a world-historic number of people. But what role does mass incarceration play in American political economy? Why did the prison-industrial complex emerge when it did? Why did it, like border militarization, rise out of the order-shaking crises of the 1970s alongside neoliberal globalization. What to make of what my guest today, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, calls the, quote, deepening divide between the hypermobile and the friction-fixed? And what, in turn, does that all reveal about what sort of politics are required to overcome it all? Ruth Wilson Gilmore is, of course, the leading abolitionist scholar of the prison-industrial complex. Today, I'm interviewing Ruthie alongside two brilliant scholars who edited Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation, a new volume of Ruthie's work, Alberto Toscano and Brenna Bandar. I know The Dig is a long podcast, but I really wish this interview could have been even longer. I didn't have time to ask even half my questions. It's a really fascinating conversation a conversation that I had days before a gunman in Texas massacred children and their teachers. A horrific event that is part and parcel of an American infrastructure and culture of armed violence that is not curtailed by police, but rather extends from the police, military, and border patrol through the gun shows selling AR-15s, the weapons company stocks that rise after every mass shooting, and the Republican campaign ads featuring candidates locked and loaded, ready to open fire against a coming woke apocalypse of open borders and child groomers. If you appreciate these conversations, please support The Dig. The reason these interviews are so in-depth is because your support allows me to do this for my full-time job and to pay everyone who helps out. And so I spend just an extraordinary amount of time preparing for each and every interview. The way that you can support The Dig is at patreon.com slash the dig. For those of you who don't know, 
it's like a monthly subscription service. You donate one, five, twenty dollars a month, whatever works for you. Everything helps a lot. Many podcasts paywall half their episodes so that you support them, which I get. And I know that I would have a lot more Patreon supporters if I did that. But it's really important to us that everyone be able to listen to everything we put out, regardless of your ability to pay. And so if you can afford to contribute, if you are a dig listener who really wouldn't miss five bucks a month in your bank account, I sincerely ask you to donate now. Plus, a donation of any amount at all gets you access to our weekly newsletter. It's excellent. Sent directly to your email inbox. Donate $10 or more a month and we will send you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or dig mug. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. I really do appreciate it. Also, we have a really gorgeous new dig website at thedigradio.com. It's really nice looking. It has all of our archives, all 350 episodes or so, organized by topic and by guest. If you ever run out of digs to listen to, please check out the website. We also, on our new website, have a growing number of transcripts of dig episodes and all of our weekly newsletters. Okay, here's Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Alberto Toscano, and Brenna Bandar. Brenna Bandar lives and works as a law professor on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples. She is the author of Colonial Lives of Property, Law, Land, and Racial Regimes of Ownership, and co-editor of Revolutionary Feminisms, Conversations on Collective Action and Radical Thought. Alberto Toscano teaches at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University and is the co-director of the Center for Philosophy and Critical Thought at Goldsmiths at the University of London. He is the author of Fanaticism on the Use of an Idea and co-editor of the Sage Handbook of Marxism. He is currently completing a book on fascism. Ruth Wilson Gilmore organizes with people around the planet teaches at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and is the author of Abolition Geography, which is edited by Brenna and Alberto, Golden Gulag, and Out This Fall, Change Everything. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Alberto Toscano, and Brenna Bandar, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Daniel. Yeah, thanks. To start out, a pretty basic question, but an important one. What is the prison industrial complex? And why is that concept a useful one for thinking about the American carceral state? You know, it never crossed my mind that would be the first question you asked. But let me take a stab at answering it. The idea for conceptualizing what we have come to describe as mass incarceration using the term prison industrial complex first kind of materialized in an article that Mike Davis published about 20 years ago, I think in The Nation. And what Mike uh, launched into our consciousness was a provocation to think about prison punishment the carceral in as expansive a way as we had learned to think about the military industrial complex. 
And while a number of people over the years have written about what that complex consists of, I think I probably have written the most, or at least gone on at the most length, in part because as an old PhD student, I studied the military-industrial complex to shreds at the seminar table of the economist and socialist Anne Marcuson. So the prison industrial complex consists of the uniformed and civilian personnel who work anywhere from the streets to the courts, to the jails, to the prisons, to the post-prison release programs and so forth. It includes the boosters in the towns where prisons and jails are built or neighborhoods. It includes the intellectuals, including myself, who make their living either designing or condemning the design of systems of punishment. It includes the finance capitalists who lend money to states and municipalities to build or improve their lockup systems. It includes the various firms that sell all kinds of goods and services to, again, states and municipalities, including the federal government, in order to keep people locked up or to keep them under surveillance when they're not locked up. So that can be anything from food service to ankle monitors, anything in between. All of that put together is the prison industrial complex. Most of the dollars that flow through it originate from public treasuries, and they fall into the hands of people in the forms of wages, salaries, utility bills, and and the kinds of things that it takes to keep the lights on overhead, uh, interest payments to bondholders who have lent money to governments to build these kinds of facilities, even though those same lenders, many of which are pension plans, uh, might have lent money to governments to build schools or parks or museums or dams or highways. Alberto? Well, I, I suppose the only thing uh, maybe that would be worth uh, uh, mentioning or reflecting on for me at this point, and I have very little to add to the, obviously, to the detail of Ruthie's analysis, is perhaps the way in which uh, a certain focus uh, on the prison or a certain focus on incarceration and criminalization can very much uh, occlude or make disappear all of the institutions, mediations, agents, and agencies that Ruthie's just uh, uh, mapped. And something we deal with a little bit in the introduction, I think the proposal to put the prison in this expanded sense at the center of uh, rethinking or reconceptualization of uh, state building and state capacities and struggles of the states, uh, especially in the United States, but elsewhere as well, could be, can and has, or is very easily misunderstood as focusing on the prison as the singular uh, architectural and punishment site for the imprisonment uh, of you know hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S., but also in in other contexts, and I guess the the dialectical proposition that I you know we both found very worthwhile to engage with in Ruthie's work is precisely that um, that single-minded focus on the 
prison in isolation from all of those mediations is perhaps one of the best way of not thinking how uh, mass incarceration operates and what its role in the broader uh, political economy is. It's a kind of reminder for me of that great uh, line uh, that uh, Bertolt Brecht borrowed about the uh, a photograph of the uh, Krupp or AEG works, uh, the military, in fact, <laughs> industrial complex of early 20th century Germany uh, doesn't tell you anything about the social relations that make it possible, right? And and our culture is suffused, right, with fetishistic and horrifying and at times well-intentioned images uh, of prisons uh, that totally disappear, everything that Ruthie's talking about in this book and everything that she's been involved in in her activism, I think. Brenna? For me, the way that Ruthie's... Um elaborated this concept of well or or this term the prison industrial complex becomes a way of thinking about global capitalism it becomes a, a kind of um method maybe a method of inquiry and so in 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 the way that she just a few moments ago broke down or kind of excavated what is congealed in this thing called the prison industrial complex is a way, for me, it's a way of thinking and a way of seeing that is enormously helpful in understanding how we can map and think about something that otherwise seems completely overwhelming, totalizing. So I think that, and we can get into the the dialectical aspects of Ruthie's elaboration of the prison industrial complex further into our conversation. But it really strikes me when she includes herself, you know, in, in the class of people, intellectuals, organizers, etc., who are also part of this prison industrial complex in the sense that I mean, it reminded me, it, it, it recalls Cedric Robinson's thinking about how dialectics operate in the constitution of something that comes to look really solid and totalizing and absolute, which is that, you know, this dialectic that's, that's involved in the creation of these things, you know, uh, involve resistance and revolve, involve contradiction, right? And that, and, and that often, I think, gets lost. So anyways, yeah, that, that, those were some of the, the things that came to mind in listening to, to Ruthie speak. And it's, you know, even having sort of read, uh, uh, read your work, Ruthie, for a long time now and reread and thought about it and talked to you so much, I still find myself taking notes when you speak. <laughs> so, which for me is really also, um, you know, another fact, and we can get into this more as well in the conversation, is how dynamic and fluid this way of thinking is. You know, and so that there's something very alive in these conversations, even if we are bringing up similar themes repeatedly, that there is a, you know, there's a movement that's a part of thinking in this way that I find really generative. I imagine many listeners will be taking notes as well. Ruthie, there's also, though, this more narrow popular reading of the term prison industrial complex that emphasizes private prisons and a cruder 
sense of the profit motive? What what do we miss about the political economy of the carceral state when we see it as the product simply of corporate greed for profits? It's it's a shame that prison industrial complex was has atrophied in the way that it has. In the 90s, as uh, organizations and, um, as it were, the rudiments of social movements uh, started to arise, people grasped the term thinking, this is telling us something that we hadn't thought about before, that we should think about. But the tendency has been to narrow, 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 to some notion of, um, as you said, Daniel, private prisons and corporate greed. Now, empirically, which is to say for listeners, if you just count it up, who's in prison, who runs that prison, who benefits from that prison, we'll find that private prisons are a minimal part of the entire thing in the United States, quite different in the UK, but we can talk about that. And the problem that I have uh, faced with a lot of people, and in fact debated with some very well-known people, has been around the question of whether thinking about private prisons might be the gateway for people to think about capitalism. And my conclusion after more than 20 years of trying to do that is it's not the gateway that private prisons are a particular thing, a particular form of parasite capitalism. They really do exist. They don't drive the system. The cause of the system, they are not the system's destiny. That in many uh, parts of the world and in many parts of the United States, the prison and jail system can be wholly public And it's no less deadly for the people locked up for the communities than places where part of the system has been uh, contracted out to private companies. But let me take this discussion in a slightly different direction, um, encouraged as I am by what Alberto and Brenna were talking about. And that is, if we think about the prison industrial complex and all of the things that I've just enumerated, and think about them in terms of contradiction, as as both Alberto and Brenna remind us we must, then we can kind of move to another level of generalization or abstraction and say, well, what, what are the, you know, fundamental things that the prison industrial complex is made of? What are the fundamental things? Land, labor, money capital, and the state's capacity to organize these things. That way of thinking, I think, gives us an entry into thinking about racial capitalism, the capitalist state, what happens when labor is surplus, what has happened to the composition of public sector workers, what has happened to the churn of money capital through the public sector over time. There are so many questions that we can then turn our attention to that might give us some stronger indication of where and how to fight. 
because the only purpose of doing any of this analysis at all is figuring out where and how to fight. To go back to the private prison um, issue for a moment, if getting rid of private prison contracts were the pathway to dismantling and dissolving the system, it would have already happened in places like the state of Tennessee or in immigrant detention because of the huge win in dismissing the contract for a private immigrant detention uh, center in Hutto, Texas, or some recent positive outcomes uh, in the Pacific Northwest around private immigrant detention contracts. However, nothing changes other than the contract, which gives us some insight into where perhaps fighting is energetically engaged in without resulting in what we want, which is people not locked up. I think almost following what Ruthie was saying and thinking back also about the first time I read Golden Gulag, most of which was actually in a flight to Los Angeles appropriately, but that in a way, the the image that transpires, especially from that work, is of what somewhat churlishly one could call a prison deindustrialization complex, right? And I think one of the things that I found really uh, striking in this kind of gestalt switch perception that happens when when you read theory that that works was the way in which that book actually allowed me to rethink about what exactly deindustrialization might mean, right? So in some sense, the notion of the, of course, the notion of the prison um, and the military industrial complex is suffused with an, you know, with a post-war notion of what the economy is and also a post-war notion of what, what profits are. And what really uh, emerges from, from Golden Gulag and from the connected essays and, and articles published in, in abolition geography is a way of reading and seeing and acting in the geography of that deindustrialization, especially in the context of California, and actually making something palpable as a site of state and capital strategies, but also as a site of organizing, which is usually entirely neglected by 99.9 repeating percent of uh, liberals and many Marxists as well, which is the whole dimension of what Ruthie, uh, borrowing from, is it Terry McGee is the name of the uh, geographer, the Desakota, the neither urban nor rural, uh, or, you know, even thinking of Phil Neal's book on, on hinterlands, right? That whole dimension as a, as, a, as a space that's not just the left behind, right? It's not just a forgotten uh, space. It, it's a space that's deeply significant for all of these moves and uh, reconfigurations of political economies and, and state strategies and everyday, you know, livelihoods. And I, I found that very powerful because I think there is a very static way of thinking about processes of urbanization and then of kind of surplusing of what used to be the rural and is now some kind of unthinkable 
uh, uh, wasteland populated by, you know, scary voters for reactionary projects. But the the image that transpires is a very different one. So I think in, in that sense, actually, and maybe this is continuing the earlier question about what an expansive notion of prison industrial complex may allow one to think, it actually makes visible as sites of theory and struggle uh, also domains uh, that, um, that that go well above and beyond uh, thinking just about incarceration, right? And and I think can be a starting point also for other, you know, for actually thinking, well, what is the shape of, you know, contemporary agricultural labor? You know, those are also things that one, one learns about through reading Ruthie's work. And so I, f- I find that element, which is very, you know, very much in contradistinction to uh, the centering on the prison and certainly the centering on the private prison to be very significant. I want to spell out some of this history we've been alluding to more concretely. Ruthie, you wrote that the prison industrial complex is an attempt to fix, quote, major problems that appear materially and ideologically as surpluses of finance capital, land, labor, and state capacity that have accumulated from a series of overlapping and interlocking crises stretching across three decades. What is the relationship between crisis and surplus? And how did the capitalist crises of the 1970s create these surpluses in particular? And then how did the prison industrial complex and what you call the anti-state state arise in an attempt to reconcile or fix these crises? Simplest way that I can present crisis and surplus to our listeners is to think that when a system goes into um, crisis, it means that it can't get through to its next day or its next round of whatever that it used to do. And that means, however, that the crisis, its inability to make its next round, whether it's the next round of reproductive life in the home or next round of production in the factory or the field or its next round of extensive and wonderful public education for children from age tiny to PhD, then all kinds of things, money things, human energy, tools, equipment, buildings become, as it were, left aside, surplused. And that surplus means that people's time is no longer needed within the formerly existing social system. I am not saying that what existed was necessarily just or good. I am saying the change means that the energy no longer is needed. Um, that um, money capital that might have flowed through um, those systems in order to be paid out as wages or as rents or as, again, overhead utilities uh, for durable equipment, for food, no longer circulates in the same way. So these are some examples of surplus. Uh, Another example that I studied rather to shreds many years ago was the um, a number of shifts in the use formerly irrigated agricultural land in California. Now, obviously, not all agricultural land everywhere has uh, experienced the same level of capital investment and improvement 
as land in the, in the dry west of the United States, but that is another example. Um, it could be coal mines in Kentucky for quite a different example. So we have surplus, which is to say all kinds of factors of production have been idled, set aside. Money surplus is perhaps the strangest one because people listening think, well, wait a second, if there's enough money, why did all of this happen? And the answer, of course, brings us to have to some crude but accurate view into capitalism and the way that money must circulate according to the particular goals of those who own or control the money capital. And money circulating in the form of the social wage through the state depends on a certain, let's call it legitimacy, uh, that's determined by any number of social actors, but certainly not by popular democratic uh, agreement. That then, this churn of unused or idle labor, land, money capital, throws already existing um, institutions deeper into crisis, where, for example, as happened in the United States, a tax revolt on the part of large banks and corporations did an enormous amount of work in making poor one of the richest political economies in the history of the world, and that was California. But it was artificially made poor because the large banks and corporations could de decide to pay lower taxes and what does that mean? It meant that they could uh, compose a legislative body and, and cause to be elected uh, a governor who would pursue those goals on behalf of, of those capitalist firms. That then left the state, in this case, the state of California, with all kinds of bureaucratic and fiscal capacities. It could borrow money, spend money, make things, hire people, train people, you name it. Had all these capacities, but did not have the legitimacy to put those energies, those organizational and human energies toward the kinds of purposes that what we used to call the welfare state, however weak, was put. Are the people who end up getting locked up disproportionately surplus populations as well? Well, they'd have to be, because if they weren't surplus, somebody would have them working for them. Look, my, my favorite astonishing number that I've repeated for some time, so it's probably bigger now than it was, is that in the United States of America, the labor, the labor force, the workforce is probably about 160 million people. Of that labor force, more than half are carrying some kind of disqualifying arrest or conviction record, whether or not they've ever been locked up. I mean, it's really quite an astonishing thing. And of course, the, those records, those disqualifying records that um, people modestly educated people in the prime of life carry 
disqualify them from certain kinds of jobs, which means that if they manage to get work, they are like gig employees, highly vulnerable to any fluctuation in the workplace or the market. They're very easy to dismiss. Very, very easy. So there's been a whole movement that's grown over the last 20 years, organized and led by people who were formerly incarcerated or as we say nowadays, justice impacted, whether or not incarcerated, to quote unquote ban the box, which is to say to get rid of the questions on employment applications that say, have you ever been arrested? The surplusing of people, surplus population, is a kind of thorny category to think about because for many who try uh, genuinely to understand how racial capitalism works in the United States, the idea of somebody being deprived of their freedom and either ankle shackled at home with a monitor or locked up in a jail or prison must somehow, for people, lead to a necessity that those unfree people's labor be exploited because otherwise, why bother? And the why bother, again, um, based in empirical reckonings of who actually does what among the two and a half, well, two and a third million people locked up at any given moment in the United States, is that, in fact, labor exploitation explains virtually nothing. And many people righteously believe, and I used to, long time ago, righteously presume that somehow continuation of unfreedom must mean a continuation of slavery, which what must mean a continuation of labor exploitation. It's different. There is exploitation. It's not labor. What turns into money that circulates as wages and interest and rent and utility bills and so forth is time. The people who are locked up are deprived of time, which is to say time is extracted from their lives. They never get it back. Nobody ever gets their time back. And it's the fact of time that becomes transformed into money that circulates in these various ways, that time becomes money. And if you think back on everything that anybody has ever written to an analyze the peculiar condition that capitalism throws entire polities and political economies into, we're reminded that Marx talked about the annihilation of space by time, and that's what happens to people who are imprisoned one by one by one. We are space, and our space, our lives, are annihilated by the extraction of time. Ruthie, you write, quote, If economics lies at the base of the prison system, its growth is a function of politics, not mechanics. Brenna and Alberto, what, 
Why is it the economic foundation of the prison system that exposes its fundamental political contingency? Quotation reminds me of the idea of the Clausewitzian and then the reversals of the Clausewitzian, you know, politics as a continuation of war by other means and how we can think about warfare in in not a Clausewitzian sense, but maybe warfare as a class war or, or race war, uh, you know, uh, uh, these other conceptions of war as being a continuation of politics by other means. And I was, you know, reminded of that formulation by the the quotation because in 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 both in both frameworks we're thinking about what the material operation of a thing kind of exposes about its about its own uh, motor force, if that makes sense, you know, and. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to go back, before Alberto answers, I wanted to go back and ask Ruthie in terms of this idea of time becoming money and the, 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 nat- the extractivist nature of the PIC in terms of prisoners is the extraction of time that they never get back. If there's also in that transmutation of time into money, if there's some element of speculation involved in that or not. But yeah, I, I wanted to, to raise that. That's a really interesting question. I have to think about it. And I mean, my my gut tells me yes, but the those who are speculating are not, as our listeners might imagine, finger-rubbing venture capitalists who are trying to figure out how to make a dollar into two. Rather, I think a lot of the speculation happens, again, in the context of already existing institutions of the state where um, people struggling to maintain, to maintain the agencies that they work in turn to what has over time, over these last 30 or 40 years, become apparently the most politically justifiable growth area of the state and say, we do this too. That's, I think, where the speculation is. We need more officers in the schools because we do this too. Or one of my favorite examples, the United States Department of Education has a SWAT team so they can come and break down your front door if they suspect that you are engaging in student loan fraud, a SWAT team. So there's that kind of speculation of a certain kind of need, as well as speculating that more and more people across the life cycle will uh, necessarily require inhibition, prohibition, punishment, in order for any social agency to do what it's supposed to do, whether it's dispense food or education or, as happened in Chicago the other day, um, the, the mayor has closed the most elaborate and fancy park in the city of Chicago to teenagers. And so, of course, that makes all of those teenagers available for the for the work of being policed. And then the police then speculate on what more they can do to build their section of the budget. 
And indeed, what we see in terms of mission absorption and mission imitation, not only do agencies whose job it is to provide the basic goods of life, education, housing, and so forth, uh, incorporate into their mission policing, exclusion, and punishment, but also in an effort to uh, resist and turn back the constant criticism and argument that many, not so much abolitionists as abolition-adjacent people have made about education, not incarceration, so forth, is that police and jails and prisons are saying, oh, well, give us more money and we will do all of that too. We, we, we can do everything. So there is a lot of speculation that's attached to the actual extraction of time or the potential identification of people whose time can then become extractable. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just really fascinating because you, you know, we start with something that's actually quite counterintuitive. And I was thinking of the analogy of property in my head, which, you know, is problematic, but also it's analogous in some ways in the sense that the, there's something very counterintuitive about the idea that you lock up people and extract time, even though there's the appearance of a kind of non-productivity, right? So there's, there's this counterintuitive thing that is then taken to these really perverse but logical, you know, conclusions in a way. And then, and the other element of what you just mapped is that it's, it's limitless in a way, or, or, or it has the appearance of being limitless when, you know, you map all of the different realms into which the speculation is taken and how it operates. So I, I think, yeah, anyway. I mean, I, I think we do tend, not just in talking about prisons or incarceration, but in general still to operate with uh, a kind of, uh, I don't know if it's a 19th century sort of antinomy, but where, you know, the, the world of economics is a world of some kind of anonymous, uh, hydraulic, <laughs> functionality, and then the world of politics is a world of uh, uh, a sovereign, generally masculine decision. The peculiar aspect of the this uh, geographical and kind of historical phenomenology of prisons that Ruthie's presenting is that actually the domains of taxations, of budgets, of competition between different agencies, indeed different police forces, right? all of whom, for instance, in the vicinity of St. Louis are trying to arrest the same African-American drivers as they move through all of these underfunded, so to speak, uh, police jurisdictions who are dependent, right, right, for their own existence on uh, extracting monetary, juridically extracting monetary value out of racialized subjects. But in that case, for instance, the intentionality cannot be thought of simply as an intentionality of a cognitively or psychologically racist police force, though they very well might be that too. But it's also a compulsion, right? It's a compulsion that puts the politics into the economics. And I think that, you know, so I think 
one of the things that we're challenged to do by uh, looking with the empirical and methodological care that Ruthie does at the uh, deployment, right, of, of, of the PAC and so on, is to rethink that relationship, right, where economics is not some macro level of the U.S. GDP and class structure and politics is you know, what elite politicians decide at any given point or what a set of ideologues think, but which might set some boundary conditions for this, which of course matter as state and federal policy matters, but also very much politics at this, uh, if not micro, at least meso level, right? Where people are indeed compelled by the political economy of the institutions of which they're part to engage, you know, they're channeled, uh, you know, at least in certain types of behaviors, which also explains why, you know, the, the a purely kind of cognitive or psychological uh, effort to roll back the racist proclivities of, you know, individual uh, members of uh, the repressive state apparatus might not get you very far because the police department fully, you know, manned by black cops in one of those um, uh, jurisdictions will have just the same compulsion in order to maintain their jobs to continue arresting, you know, modestly educated working people in their area, right? And and, and that's what we'll, that's what we'll obtain. So I th yeah, I think we need to, when we think of politics vis-a-vis -vis economics, it shouldn't be, right? I mean, it's really thinking about political economy, I mean, to be a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, trad, uh, and uh, and and I think uh, political economy as its constant critique, right? Not as you know some domain of objectivity that then allows us to map why people behave in certain ways despite their you know intentions. I was just thinking to to follow up on on what Alberto was just saying, and the terrific question that Brenna had put to me that I've been thinking about more than I realized. But once, once you put it to me, it's like, oh, I have been thinking about that. And that is to think about territories and thinking territory as the, as it were, the fundamental condition of what we understand to be states, that states have this territorial jurisdiction, but also to, to pick up on the word that, that Alberto used, um, sovereignty and the kind of liberal notion, I'm not embracing this, but I do want to point out its importance to what we're talking about, the liberal notion of the sovereign individual who um, then allegedly has domain over the territory of herself. And it's exactly the um, evacuation or the cancellation of uh, that sovereignty for part or all of their lives, uh, which is what makes people who are criminalized, again, whether or not incarcerated, vulnerable to time extraction. It's the end of sovereignty. It's sovereignty less. Sovereign I don't know. You're going to have to figure out what that word is. <laughs> They're not people who are lacking sovereigns. They're people who, who do not have sovereignty. At the same time, at the same time, to go back to states, 
States are, of course, complex and contradictory um, sets of institutions. They are subjects and objects of struggle, etc. They are all of this. Certain arms of the state, especially the forces of organized violence, police and military, have in the U.S. context and perhaps everywhere that we are able to think about, a sense of their own sovereign right to inflict or extract, inflict harm or extract freedom, which is to say, uh, take time from people, you know, in their domain. So there are, you know, all these petty sovereigns, as it were, who get to do what they do. And I came across this really great phrase of the late, great Joan Didion's, who in writing about, oh, I think maybe it's in her writing on El Salvador, talks about the inconsolable anger on the part of the forces of organized violence when they encounter pushback, right? Political, cultural criticism of the things that they do. And I think that this is really true in the United States today, that the, the level and density of police organization and the the unabashed promotion of policing and organized violence on the part of people who, having worked their way up through police forces, are now the heads of municipal states, Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, Eric Adams in New York, and so forth, are constantly repeating what I can only see as their inconsolable anger that they're having become cops was not enough for all of us who criticized them. And they then deploy more cop work. They are insisting, like a, a, you know, an absolutist monarch of the 18th century, that they must be respected and that the way they will get the respect they need is to do whatever bodily reconfiguration of your person that they and their forces of organized violence wish to do. That's, that's where I think we are. What you say brings to mind just this visceral attachment to police and anger over any sort of questioning of the legitimacy of police authority that makes Blue Lives Matter so core to today's right-wing politics. Ruthie, riffing off Stuart Hall, you write, quote, Race is a modality through which political economic globalization is lived. So mass incarceration, this ultimate fixing of certain people in place in really large numbers, is key to understanding the forms of capitalism that we've seen ascendant since the 1970s or so. Similarly, so we've seen the same thing with the hardening of national borders. So border militarization and mass incarceration, it's all been part of this, quote, deepening divide between the hypermobile and the friction fixed. What is the historical relationship here between increasing mobility for capital and growing control over the movement of people, whether in prisons or between nation states? Well, this is something we should all talk about because it, it actually, it differs a lot in different places, certainly. And as we've already 
been indicating in a variety of ways in the in the things that Brenna and Alberto and I have been talking about. It's not as that as though what we see working is some kind of mechanistic functional uh, system in which the economic imperative then produces a certain output. It's not a machine, though it feels like a machine sometimes because it's so big and noisy. So the movement of capital, which has gotten freer and freer and freer, and the relative immobility of labor in the North American context, which is, say, U.S., Canada, and Mexico, so it's not all of North America, but most of it, has been in part a way to uh, make it possible for the capitalist firms uh, that pass their goods through these three countries to sort of maximize what they can extract from workers. I mean, that's, that's clearly what NAFTA was about. And I forget what the new name of what used to be called NAFTA is, uh, seems still to be about that. Now, if we step out of the United States for a moment and think about other places that are also uh, characterized by uh, remarkable inequality, we can say, well, we see that uh, in India, a large, vast, complicated political economy, urban, rural, manufacturing, not, and so forth, that um, people on top of the other, many other um, conflicts and contradictions, uh, people from Assam have been uh, officially relegated to second-class status. And many of the people from, from Assam travel to other states of India in order to work in agriculture and, and so on and so forth, waterfront and so forth. Uh, Dominican Republic has diminished the citizenship status of people who are the descendants of Haitians. Now, this is one island. And so Haitian Dominicans are second-class citizens in the Dominican Republic. The UK has been deporting people um, many places, but particularly to Jamaica, as well as elsewhere, in their, um, you know, constant purges. To do what, though? Is it to uh, secure the labor force they want? Is it to secure a certain kind of uh, provisional legitimacy as the rapacious capital, uh, capitalist firms suck money and resources through the state, so from people's pockets through the state into their coffers, whether in the UK case to run private prisons or to do the uh, test and trace apps and, and the other things through which um, cronies of the current UK government have uh, amassed billions and billions and billions of pounds of revenue? Is it, you know, in South Africa where the um, high levels of un and underemployment, the sort of constant movement of people closer to where 
money wages can be earned means that the cities have grown way more rapidly than the cities have had uh, the capacity to build and provide infrastructure and services. And the self-built communities around Durban, around Cape Town, around Joburg and elsewhere have become sites of self-organization, but also struggle with very intense policing and a lot of of um, fights as well, at the same time that I'm told by people whose analysis I trust, the level of, of xenophobic violence is in South Africa is rising again because basically the cost of bread is rising again. So in the U.S., anti-immigrant, in India, anti-immigrant, in South Africa, anti-immigrant, in Brazil, there's a lot of struggle around the same kinds of issues. And all of these places, and the UK, famously with Brexit, all of these places have deep inequality and have pretty high levels of mass incarceration, although nobody is remotely close in terms of rape. Uh, remotely close to the United States. Do you do you see a connection between, on on the one hand, the declining legitimacy of the global economic order and the, the liberal internationalist world order that we've seen in recent years, on the one hand, and this increasingly intense debate over the prison industrial complex and immigration, when when for such a long time, mass incarceration and immigration control, alongside neoliberal globalization, I'm particularly thinking of the 90s, all of these three things, mass incarceration, immigration control, neoliberal globalization, were really taken to be almost natural norms. Not that they weren't criticized by some, but is there a relation between some sort of legitimacy crisis for all three of these things? I mean, one of the things that's a real challenge in order to get to uh, grips with the legitimacy crisis uh, you mentioned, Daniel, and the particular way in which it's articulated by movements of uh, the so-called populist uh, or indeed radical right or far right is in a way that classic issue of the link between racism, racialization and forms of exploitation and forms of capitalism, right? I remember reading uh, a few years ago, uh, Peter Fryer's book, Staying Power, History of uh, uh, Black People in Britain. And it has three chapters on uh, riots. And two of them concern returning white English soldiers from World War I and World War II who were previously employed as dock workers and whose dock work had been uh, supplemented by workers from broadly speaking, uh, the Commonwealth, who had who had uh, either migrated for those jobs or shifted from other jobs to those, including actually, a, a, if I'm not mistaken, in, in, in Liverpool, a large uh, uh, proportion of Yemenis, in, in Bristol, uh, other groups as well. And then there's a chapter, of course, about the Notting Hill riots in the 50s, right? Which, of course, are on the racialization of housing and of the the structure and the nature of urban space if we take you know so th- that you know gives us a sense right of of how mutable also the the points of condensation for 
far-right mobilization uh, are. Uh, indeed, it was the the Dockers, uh, some of the Dockers, of course, I'm not besmirching the entire category, but it was, it was a group of Dockers who came out in defense of Enoch Powell, right? After after the Rivers of Blood speech in, in, in the late 60s as well. And what we see, though, I think in the present, just thinking about the UK, which I, I found, I mean, both galling as one lived through it, but, you know, also uh, really um, striking, was the way in which the politics that drove the removal of the capacity to labor, the move of the right to, to, to labor within, uh, you know, the, the, the British polity from, uh, let's say, Bulgarian and, and Polish and, and, and Romanian workers uh, as the, the primary, if not by any means the sole target of this wave, which also included in a complex articulation, the attack on the whole so-called Windrush generation, that that was perceived by many as a very peculiar and, and, and actually in a in a very quotidian sense as a very peculiarly irrational operation because it was driven by sort of tabloid British jobs for British workers, a phrase that Alas Gordon Brown also pronounced at one point, which when those Bulgarian Romanian workers were uh, uh, removed or left of their own accord because the situation was so miserable and dire and devoid of horizons, were not replaced by uh, those famous British workers. It wasn't the, uh, you know, the Tommies returning to work on the docks, right? Uh, and having a, a, a struggle over this racialized uh, working site. It was a very much a kind of superstructural, uh, in, in, in many ways, fantasy also about the nature of what work and class mean in, in Britain. So I think that was very striking, as was, and feel the the need to uh, to mention it at least in this forum, the bewildering failure of vast ways of people of so-called progressive opinion to not look at people's passports when they did their class analysis, which became to you know a a, a reflex for so many, right? So. All of those cliches, right, about working class voter rebellions and so on and so forth, were very happy to say working class without thinking of who packed their salads and who worked in their fields and who manned the uh, the logistical centers and so on and so forth, right? And I, I think um, that is, you know, has been a very striking element of the also the imaginative geographies uh, and identifications that go along with class that make a lot of these phenomena difficult to talk about and 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 organize around in any even remotely emancipatory sense uh, and i think in, in in other domains there i think there have been better at least slivers of a, of a better politics i'm thinking for instance of some of the uh, strikes around logistical work in Italy, which very much had migrant and, and uh, um, you know, non-white workers, you know, completely at the center of them uh, for some time. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start from where, where Alberto just left off, um, talking about the logistical strikes and thinking, you know, really hard about the 
people who in during the pandemic were, you know, characterized with applause and pot banging, the essential workers who at great peril to themselves went out and did the essential work of bringing us our salads or going to the hospital without um, adequate PPE to care for people who were sick and dying and suffering. And over the last couple of years, I've been following with great interest many things, not the least of which is the fact that uh, one of the biggest unions in the United States is the National Nurses United. And the nurses are really quite a formidable group of people whose um, political education over the last two years has compelled them to uh, agree to really astonishing, in my view, really remarkable a set of resolutions that they published at their convention last this past January. And so they talked about things like what is happening with the circulation of, well, I call it the social wage, what's happened to public budgets over time, what what about, I mean, they have demanded nonstop free universal health care for all. They have um, uh, stepped up in opposition to immigrant control. Many people who work in nursing in the United States are themselves long-distance migrants, probably in most cases with adequate documentation to be able to come and go as they like. But there is a political understanding of the experience of long-distance migration that matters. So it's not just that they're migrants, it's they ha have developed a political understanding in the context of struggling face-to-face uh, -face with suffering people uh, in hospitals. Meanwhile, they, like people who work for Amazon or people who work for Starbucks, work for these incredibly enormous uh, multinational corporations, and yet they are constrained to fight worksite by worksite by worksite. So there is an understanding of the dilemmas of both big capital and, as it were, the kind of neoliberal imperatives that have been, you know, forcing down wages and disrupting the sort of close relations that, uh, in some cases, smaller firms might have had with the communities where people live and work, right? So the, there is this abstract enemy called Hospital Corporation of America. There is this constant movement through this kind of Desicota space between Philippines and the United States or Liberia and the United States or Sierra Leone in the United States or Jamaica in the United States at the places which are one of the homes I don't ever purport to know what home means to anybody and multiple homes for working people are not all that uncommon. But wherever home is, obviously there's some kind of disruption, in, unstable or not, that has compelled the movement of people from Liberia, Sierra Leone, Jamaica, Philippines, to the United States or to the Gulf or wherever they work to work and send remittances home. The fact of remittances then gives another 
you know, more insight. So all of this, these dynamics that the nurses, or at least their political education uh, formation, have been thinking about enable the possibility for people to think internationalism from the ground up. And I, can, I mean, I could say a lot more about that, but I, I want to give one other example. And that is, again, from ground up, the, the work that for now 38, almost 40 years, the MST has been doing in Brazil. So land occupations, establishment of villages, establishment of schools, so on and so forth, as well as sending teams out around the world to work with people, including in the self-built communities of, of, of South Africa and, and in Indonesia and wherever to, to work with people to figure out how to make whatever soil and agricultural capacity they have flourish. There's also an, an, an entire uh, urban dimension uh, of late um, that the MST has been involved in not only uh, struggling around uh, food insecurity or food apartheid or nutritional insecurity, whatever you want to call it, in um, the cities uh, of Brazil, both the uh, very overbuilt as well as the self-built hillside favelas, but also in solidarity with long-distance migrants who pass through Brazil, heading very often to the United States and Canada, who are vulnerable to being entrapped by the various police forces of uh, the countries they'll pass through who have contracts with the United States to prevent people's movements. I mean, all of, there's all of this going on. So if that adds up to a legitimacy crisis for neoliberalism, I, I'll say, yeah, I I, uh, I applaud that view, and I think it's incumbent on us to think as closely as we can about the various really spectacular events of the last couple of years. I mean, not only that the U.S. cities all went up in flames for a while, but also events like that incredible general strike in India where, you know, a quarter of a billion people put their tools down which tells us there's all this other organizing going on because that doesn't happen spontaneously, right? So I, I think there is some significant legitimacy crisis. I think that the forces of organized violence for the overdeveloped world are very busy positioning their troops uh, around the world, whether it's in Somalia or somewhere closer and closer to the Ukraine border, the questions of what sovereignty means are fundamental to what we're trying to figure out. And yet, I don't feel the kind of overwhelming despair that some of the things I write about might seem to suggest I should feel. Because everything I write is in order for us to figure out how to organize. I, I, when I was thinking about your question or statement you put to Ruthie about legitimacy crisis of something like neoliberalism or mass incarceration, I, I thought, well, you're kind of asserting it as though it's self-evident, you know, that there is a legitimacy crisis. And, I, and so after listening to what 
Ruthie just said, I guess it's something that I'd like to think further about because from where I'm sitting, it doesn't feel like there is a legitimacy crisis exactly. And that, you know, the, I mean, given, given the moment that we're in with a climate crisis and a climate emergency, you would think that there would be a, a much more virulent legitimacy crisis when it comes to neoliberalism, mass incarceration, et cetera, everything else you, you, you mentioned, but um, that's just not, I don't know. It's just not what it looks like from where I'm sitting. And um, when we think about questions of sovereignty, of course, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in British Columbia, I'm sitting on Musqueam land right now. And these, the struggles in this place are, really ones of assertions of different jurisdiction, right? They're assertions of indigenous jurisdiction over their lands uh, coming up against a state capital nexus and a legal apparatus that insists on reducing these jurisdictional uh, confrontations and battles down to real estate matters and property disputes. So there's there's a way in which I think and and I guess you know the other place from where I'm sitting is is as a as as a legal scholar. So in thinking about the the legal structures that you know underlie neoliberalism or if we think about neoliberal legality I think what I see is actually a a system or systems that are, that make it in, in terms of how they operate, it, it is much more difficult in this moment to actually identify points of opposition, which is something, you know, Ruthie was talking about earlier, I think. If we think about the way that neoliberal legality operates as both being parasitic on the kinds of liberal legalism that we're all now very, you know, accustomed to critiquing and we can see the points of opposition and we can deconstruct them in our sleep and all of that, you know, neoliberal legality operates in a very different way, I think, to make it extremely, extremely difficult to find a point of real genuine opposition. And when I say that, to give a more concrete example of what I mean, if we think about financialization and housing, the way that neoliberalism operates in terms of labor, which is to going back to the idea of the extraction of time, but in a very different way than than the incarcerated. But, you know, neoliberal relations of work have made it extremely difficult for people even to find the time to organize. I mean, this is something very different from the world that I that I was familiar with as a young young person, right, where I could see how older people or you know people who were organizing uh, organizer even even if I think twenty years ago, what time felt like in terms of uh, just all of the basic elements of reproducing one's life and the people who you live with, right, like those basic elements of social reproduction. I think that you know, neoliberalism and, and certainly the legal apparatus that, that gives it a material life has created a situation where it is the, the whole idea of the legitimacy crisis, I think, is then also needs to be, I think, 
reframed or, or rethought then sort of where, where do we see modes of resistance and confrontation that are adequate to the way that neoliberalism works? I think this is, yeah. you know, a big question. I think we see the, the, this one time very naturalized, normalized bipartisan politics behind neoliberalism, mass incarceration, border enforcement breaking down, not only because of declining legitimacy in the eyes of a radicalizing left, but also in the eyes of a radicalizing right. But I agree that we're not at really a full crisis point, but instead some sort of really long, some really long running interregnum where it seems like everyone has lost faith, but people are nowhere, I don't know, nowhere angry or organized enough to to make a change, a massive systemic change, either for better or, you know, in the case of the rights, disillusionment for very much for the worse. I wonder, though, if we could, in a sense, divide or multiply even the the notion of crisis of legitimacy, right? I mean, partly, um, you know, riffing off of what Brenna was saying about, about living somewhere where the very legitimacy of the, the state has never been recognized by uh, by the people whose lands were taken and occupied. And we can, in a sense, extend that also to think of vast swathes of social life where people never felt that domination over them or the extraction of portions of their uh, wages and work and so on had, or whether state or an, and its minions had any uh, particular legitimacy. I'm thinking uh, there's some um, great passages I remember from these letters that the uh, Italian uh, communist Manantonita Maciocchi was sending to Altusera as he was in the depths of silent depression during May 68. And she was campaigning in Naples in the so-called subproletarian neighborhoods of, of, of Naples. And she writes wonderfully about the completely uh, both, both ironic and distant and instrumental relationship that all of the Neapolitans she was talking to had with legality as such and with the state, which were at best things to be tolerated, perhaps things to be undermined or things to be manipulated if need be or to be negotiated with either monetarily or otherwise, but who were never actually interpolated as citizen subjects. That just not was not the game they were in. And so I wonder, right, to for whom, you know, for whom has there been legitimacy and for whom has it entered into crisis and how? for a resurgent or intensified and recombining radical and far right, certainly in settler colonial contexts, which have their very specific forms of fascization, it is to go back to terms that both Brenna and Ruthie have raised. It is a matter of a of a re-empowering of a racialized form of petty sovereignty constitutional sheriff's movements in the states, this, these bizarre forms of dual power that leverage the Republican Party for extremely um, militarized, uh, but also kind of dual biopower forms of local politics, right? Where they're also, you know, building ramps for disabled people and, you know, etc. Or, you know, in the Italian case, you know, you have these 
you know, patriotic occupations done by far-right groups who, you know, take over apartment buildings in Rome for, you know, people with Italian passports who are unemployed, but who also, you know, go out and attack migrants. Uh, they have very different relationships to, to, to legitimacy. So I think in, in some ways seeing it, you know, I, th I think there's a risk that's obviously necessary of seeing the crisis of legitimacy through the lens of a kind of electoral disaffection or a disaffiliation with the systems of representation, which I think is extremely significant and needs to be thought about and dealt with. But I think there's other, other layers and there's also an, an asymmetry, whether the one who is looking for a legitimacy that's lost is nostalgic for a legit legitimacy that they imagined existed for people like them and who want to reinvigorate or reenact it in some sense, and whether instead that crisis is experienced by people who never necessarily felt themselves to be the people who the state was interpolating as citizens, but who perhaps had a less violent and less exclusionary, uh, less depressing relationship to those state institutions uh, in the past than they did now or found room to breathe and live in a way that now is becoming more, for, for various reasons, uh, uh, less, less the case. So I do think it, it, it's not to say that the notion of a legitimacy crisis and of the kind of interregnum you mentioned, Daniel, is not uh, useful or pertinent, because I very much think it is. But I think we need to kind of really divide that notion of legitimacy and think about how, how and if it's experienced and lived in, in, in people's lives. I mean, we can also see it in the U.S., not just in terms of representative political institutions, but also, of course, in the workplace at Starbucks and Amazon, to name two inspiring examples. In the U.S., of course, we have lived through the reconfiguration of the territorial extent of all kinds of remedies for perceived diminution of rights. And that's a wordy way of saying that however much the federal state of the U.S. sort of generalized, as it were, a territorially expansive protection of vulnerable people, that is going away. It's going away very deliberately. And the people in the state uh, legislators and their governors and, and so forth who are sort of seeing this uh, fragmentation of the territory of rights, if you will, are doing it because they, of course, embraced the notion of a legitimacy crisis and have organized themselves and have acted to reconfigure the world in a way that they brings back or brings ahead the world according to the rules that they think should be in place. I mean, this is what Laura Ingram says. All right. So, but I want, I want to say a little more about this uh, and connect it to what Brenna was talking about concerning how many people in Canada uh, and in unceded lands and around the planet in the context of constant testation over the control and use, the usufruct of land, are persistently invited 
to embrace the notion that the way to resolve that dilemma is for, as Brenna said, for land to become private property. So this is happening where you're at. It's happening in Jamaica. It's happening all over the place. It's not happening evenly, but it's certainly happening. And one of the effects, I think, of this um, particular kind of uh, incorporation of people who imagine themselves to be contesting dispossession, that their incorporation then strengthens rather than weakens what we're calling neoliberalism. Although 90% of the time, I'm not really sure what I mean when I say the word. Part of this kind of incorporation, in my view, kind of uh, appeals to people, people's notion of themselves as beings who bear culture with them. So whether we are bearing our indigenous culture and if we can have this land as property, then we can perform our culture. And I don't mean do a dance for an audience, I mean be. And that this uh, appeal to culture also, I think, helps us understand the various dimensions of how the strong executive, and I really mean the Iron Fist executive, is um, so much presented as the remedy for problems that one imagines in a democratic setting would be slugged out in democratic assemblies. So I'm going to give an example, which is going to sound far from the example of the privatization of unceded land in where Brenna's at. But in the city of New York, there's been an ongoing crisis over um, the city jails. So famously, Rikers Island, which has been the penal colony for um, many decades, has been roundly condemned politically. People die there all the time and so forth. The former mayor of New York proposed building four new jails, dotting them around the boroughs, and spending $11 billion of borrowed money to build these things so that the jails could somehow fulfill the promise of actual um, enlightened correction. And of course, the abolitionists, we abolitionists have been against this. Well, there's a new round of activity in the city of New York now around the issue of where and under what conditions Um, a new jail for, quote, women and gender expansive people, unquote, should be and how it should be run. All right. So far, so good. You can see this, this landscape I've laid out in the city of New York. Well, the people who have proposed the elaboration of this new jail, different from the four new jails that the former mayor had, had proposed, say, our jail is not really going to be a jail. The perimeter will be secured by cops, by correction officers, but the people inside who work there will not be prison employees. It's going to be run by a not-for-profit. But 
In order to achieve this spectacularly wonderful new lockup for women and gender expansive people, the city of New York, which is one of the most densely unionized public formations in the United States, is going to have to break the union contract with the prison guards. Now, in order for the city of New York to break the contract with the prison guards, necessarily a new body, decision-making body, has got to slide into the already existing complexity of a city that's composed of five different counties and above those five different counties be able to hire, reprimand, and fire anybody, right? So we'll have the strongest imaginable executive who will then lift the problem of prison well-being and prison rehabilitation for women and gender expansive people out of the realm of politics and put it, keep it in the realm of, quote, culture. This is the word they keep using, culture that's then put into uh, motion by technocrats. In the context of everything that, that we've been talking about, I think we can see in, in, in this story of what is being debated right now in the city of New York, both neoliberal legitimacy crisis and a neoliberal resolution to the, neo, to the legitimacy crisis, both things at once. And um, as Olufemi Taiwo says in his new book, Elite Capture, of course, there are, you know, countless people who are pushed to the front of the stage in every discussion who once upon a time were locked in the hellhole that is Rikers, who say, yes, I want this new prison. And we never explore the question, why do you expect that you or anybody should go or go back to prison? Like, that's not even on an agenda of possibility any more than I think in, in, in the case that Brenna was talking about, that there is any possibility, um, seriously discussed possibility for actual land back rather than privatizing some bits of unceded territory in the part of North America where you're at. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Democracy's Chief Executive, Interpreting the Constitution and Defining the Future of the Presidency by Peter M. Shane. In the eyes of modern-day presidentialists, the United States Constitution's vesting of executive power means today what it meant in 1787. For them, what it meant in 1787 was the creation of a largely unilateral presidency, and, in their view, a unilateral presidency still best serves our national interest. 
democracy's chief executive challenges each of these premises while showing how their influence on constitutional interpretation for more than 40 years has set the stage for a presidency ripe for authoritarianism. Offering instead a fresh approach to balancing presidential powers, Peter M. Shane develops an interpretive model of adaptive constitutionalism rooted in the values of deliberative democracy. Democracy's chief executive, interpreting the Constitution and defining the future of the presidency by Peter M. Shane. Out now from University of California Press. Ruthie, you write, quote, The key point is this. At any scale, racism is not a lagging indicator, an anachronistic drag on an otherwise achievable social equality guaranteed by the impersonal freedom of expanding markets. History is not a long march from pre-modern racism to post-modern pluralism. Rather, racism's changing same does triple duty. Claims of natural or cultural incommensurability secure conditions for reproducing economic inequalities, which then validate theories of extra-economic hierarchical difference. And then elsewhere you write, quote, The state's management of racial categories is analogous to the management of highways or ports or telecommunication. Racist ideological and material practices are infrastructure that needs to be updated, upgraded, and modernized periodically. This is what is meant by racialization. And the state itself, not just interests or forces external to the state, is built and enhanced through these practices. Sometimes these practices result in protecting certain racial groups, and other times they result in sacrificing them. This notion of racism as a changing same reminded me of a few things. First, of Joe Lounce and Daniel Martinez-Hosang's work in their book, Producers, Parasites, Patriots, when they, when they point when they point in particular to how frameworks conventionally used developed to stigmatize black women welfare recipients as, as parasitic on the productive taxpayer, how in the Tea Party era that was redeployed against unionized public employees. And it also made me think about Trump's growing support from black and from from Latino and even even black voters in 2020. Anyone can take this one first. How do you see racism and racial formations mutating today? And to what end do they appear to be mutating? Well, one example that um, many people talk about in the context, not only of the U.S., but also Western Europe, is the quote-unquote racialization of Muslims, who themselves might check, if, if they live in a place that has categories to check, which many people don't, might check any range of more old-fashioned racial and ethnic identifiers. So that is an example. It's not the only one. Also, certainly, and Alberto and Brenna, you you lived through this and probably thought about it a lot. In the the build-up to Brexit, um, it was pretty striking, as I've learned from my friend Ben Rogali and others, how, for example, Polish workers were, you know, constantly um, harassed more and more and more as the the date for Brexit drew near by all kinds of people saying, at last, you're going to leave and go home. And I say that just to sort of underscore, once again, that race and color are not an identity. And even 
national origin? I mean, I think there's many different ways of answering that question, most certainly. Um, but a couple of things come to mind for me, and it it relates back to several of the themes we've talked about. And one is the the idea of the petty sovereign and how racial violence is currently playing out. So I wanted to add to the framework that Ruthie elaborated when she was discussing that proliferation of police organizing and uh, that kind of police work. The Again, the framework of, of settler colonialism to think about how historically, for sure, but also in the current moment. So I think this is something that has maintained a very important place in the formation of settler colonial states is the figure of the petty sovereign who is not the the typical figure, we you know, person we associate with that term, the police, the administrator, etc., the jailkeeper, the bailiff. It's actually, you know, citizens who fall into a, a, a long-established kind of racial kinship with the sovereign state. And settler violence has always relied on the blurring of that line between, you know, the police who have the monopoly of violence and then the petty sovereign citizen subject who doesn't have a monopoly of violence but is certainly enabled by the state to enact all kinds of lethal racial violence. So we can think about, you know, how that's manifesting in this particular moment in the context of rising authoritarianism, white nationalism. You know, I think that there were elements of that in the freedom convoy, the so-called freedom convoy in Canada that lasted several months, or the clown voice, people <laughs> referred to it maybe very disparagingly, but, you know, where we saw the police in Ottawa almost give their blessing. You know, it, when you listen to the interviews with some of the police, and they were talking about the the convoy protesters, it was as if they were talking about their kin, like their sons or their cousins, you know, there was this kind of under level implicit understanding. Now I'm generalizing of course, but that was definitely present. And I think about you know how forms of racialization are changing in other contexts. So in terms of the petty sovereign figure that also comes to mind in in the context of Israel Palestine where all of the settlement m- much of the settlement activity and displacement and dispossession happening also happens through the figure of the petty sovereign who is not a police a member of the military or the police state right these are private petty sovereigns you could say maybe and and you know i think of palestine because i also think about how racialization and anti-palestinian or anti-arab racism is is manifesting itself today where there's a a mutating form, we could say perhaps, where, um, you know, racialized people who are not necessarily Palestinian face a particular form of racism because of their support for Palestinian rights. You know, now how do we think about that form of racism 
in this current moment. And maybe there is a legitimacy crisis when it comes to Israel's apartheid practices. And that is why we see this as a response to that. I don't know. Maybe that's uh, um, something to think about. But yeah, I think that the mutating forms of racism and racialization are, do provide an example of where they mutate in response to a kind of crisis often. You know, and I think that these examples I've talked about are, are instances where there is a crisis uh, that, you know, in, in the Canadian context has been produced by um, the pandemic and uh, also, of course, the recent rise in at least the discourse or the rhetoric of reconciliation around Indigenous rights and Indigenous, not just Indigenous rights, but Indigenous sovereignty. And then in the Israel-Palestine context, you also see more recently a, a growing global consensus that the state of Israel is engaging in apartheid practices with mainstream human rights organizations finally you know, backing up what Palestinians and others have been saying for decades. Um, and that is producing a virulent reaction, which, in, which incorporates particular processes of racialization, namely the one, one you know, one example is what I just mentioned. So um, that's, that, that, those are some of the, the thoughts that are provoked by your question. What about the strange situation, and this is for anyone, what about the strange situation where people that we certainly think of as racialized, like Hispanics in the lower Rio Grande Valley, are swinging hard to the right? Not only swinging hard to the right politically, but really seeing themselves reflected in MAGA America. The first answer to your question, Daniel, is to think really hard about that phrase you use, see as racialized. That the, that the dynamics are perhaps far less direct and predictable than we who have gotten into the habit of speaking in collective generalizations, for good reason, tend to present and re- represent. The race, the race and racial capitalism isn't an epiphenomenon, and yet it's still a fiction. And people take to the streets right, because of real effects. But that means they take to the streets in order to undo real effects, in order to embrace some other possible effects in their lives. And so it, it kind of doesn't surprise me to think, oh, People in the Rio Grande Valley who all kinds of folks might have assumed would uh, cast their electoral ballots on the side of greater opportunity and protection for quote unquote people of color didn't do it any less than I'm than that so many people of African descent in the United States see that their path and their household and community's path to well-being and security is to become cops. Like, they know all the stories about cops. They know all of them. They become cops. I mean, I don't see that that is any more surprising than people in the Rio Grande Valley voting for Trump. 
Eric Adams got beat up by um, cops as a teenager. That made him like a cop. You know, it's just, it's, it's like the categories. It's, I think that the reason that many people kind of stub their toe, their analytical toe on racial capitalism is that they think that the categories must be fixed rather than thinking that the whole like genius of capitalism is that it changes all the time and that racial is part of this changing. I mean, can't have capitalism without people, cannot have capitalism without inequality, cannot have capitalism without constantly the system, wherever it is, at whatever scale, going into crisis, which means we cannot have capitalism without capitalism saving capitalism from capitalism. And it's in that dynamic that we see these things, these these relationships, these identities, these assertions, these ascriptions emerge, consolidate, perhaps fracture again. Some of us have been talking um, just recently, kind of in a desultory way, about how terrific it would be if um, those sort of huge anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, anti-imperial category political blackness came back into being, right? And coming back into being would mean it would have to have meaning to go forward into being, right? There isn't any return. And the 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 kinds of fragmentation and sort of categorical fixity that so many people, especially in the U.S. context, um, sort of project from our eyes and our understanding onto people in their, um, you know, kind of messy common sense is probably what's in the way of such uh, an all-embracing category to start moving as the kind of specter of our time. But it seems to me there ought to be something that can do the work of suturing categories so that they become, so that the possibility of solidarity, which we can see if we look, the possibility of solidarity rather than alliance becomes more meaningful to people as they look around trying to understand what's going on in the world. Yeah, it, it takes us back to that concept of changing. Same, if race is the constant apologia for that changing capitalist systems, changing forms of inequality, then we shouldn't be so surprised that, that race and racism are always changing too, and that if we are going to make major political economic change, that's going to require articulating new forms of identity as well. Right, in the context of fighting capitalism. I mean, it's like... Yeah, it's not one or the other. If it's not both, it's nothing, I think. Alberto? Well, maybe just to uh, go back to what um, the two, not examples, but uh, kind of cases that, that Ruthie was talking about uh, just at the beginning of her uh, answer, namely uh, the racialization of, uh, to use an improper term, you know, phenotypically white uh, Europeans and, and the question of Islam. Uh, recently, I was 
uh, as part of um, trying to write this uh, book on uh, the contemporary afterlives of fascism reading, again, some of Cedric Robinson's work, and actually the way in which the, the, the optic of racial capitalism is um, employed by him to uh, counter what he sees as these, uh, as he nicely puts it, manicured genealogies of uh, fascism produced by Western intellectuals throughout the 20th century. And he actually uh, very strikingly says, well, you know, there are two distinct, he says, uh, and concealed cultural articulations that lie behind modern racism. And one is the intra-European and therefore retroactively, but totally anachronistically intra-white articulation of conquest, dispossession and depredation along uh, racialized tribal or group uh, axes. And the other one is the encounter with uh, Islam, right? Or the Europe's encounter with its kind of Islamic other. And that becomes those... (laughs) Two elements which are, you know, I think it would be obviously very uh, uh, methodologically inaccurate to say they have returned in any, like, uh, in, in any uh, uh, direct sense. But it's striking, right, that that those are seen as the, the matricial bases for a racial capitalism that is not born in the transatlantic slave trade, right? Uh, uh, contrary to what bizarrely a lot of people still think that Cedric Robinson said, but leave that aside. And also, I think maybe to go back to the point that you raised earlier, citing Ruthie regarding the, you know, the material and infrastructural character of the work that race does and the constant repair of its failing infrastructure, you know, or the need to, to, to kind of recombine it. Uh, in that same uh, passage, Robinson speaks of racial discourses are there to normalize the abundant and frequently destabilized systems of domination and subordination, right? And so in one sense, it's the, it's the destabilization and the various vectors of destabilization that need to be attended to, both analytically and, you know, militantly or prescriptively or however you want to talk about it, to think through these Questions that you've, you know, that, that you've raised so pertinently and that Brennan and Ruthie have already um, discussed. Abolition is sometimes heralded as a as this position of intransience. It is the stubborn insistence that the entirety of the prison industrial complex and the whole social order that requires it, that it's beyond reform or repair. As you write in the book, such an insight, quote, makes people impatient, as it well should. And yet, the sort of struggles and demands that your organizing has advanced in that and that you celebrate throughout the book, it's not the stuff of immediate total rupture with prisons and police. And what's more, the, the capacious picture of abolition that you paint for us seems to move at a slower pace than a single revolutionary event or, or some sort of decree that, that prisons and police batons shall all be traded in for plowshares. How should we relate this abolitionist maximalism to the longer arc of social transformation that it might require. And and what does that mean? And this is something I, I think you've written about, Alberto. What does that mean for how we think about what revolution means? Uh, that's a great question. I was just reading um, China Melville's new book on the um, Communist Manifesto. And, and he actually takes on, a, a, takes up a debate that... Um, 
couple of those Western Marxists, Perry Anderson and what's his name, All That Is Solid, Marshall Berman, had about what a revolution is. And, uh, and of course, Perry says a revolution is a very specific thing. It's a change of a government from below. Otherwise, it's just a metaphor. And then the discussion ensued. Well, here's what I think. I think that um, if uh, living life for the purpose of changing how we live life takes a long time, so be it. The kinds of problems that we who think a lot about abolition and try our best to explain uh, its um, kind of universal remit tried to show is that there are certain kinds of changes that just kind of reorganize what already is, like solving, resolving problems of unceded territory with privatization of property, or electing police officers to preside over the capital of capital, of capitalism in New York. And that the, the long durée is not the purpose, but it, it ought not be surprising at all. Just as it took, you know, it's taken, I mean, you know, we're all here looking at each other because of stuff that started happening in more or less 1451, right? So it's not as though we're, we're, we're stuck in a, a series of events and reconfigurations of recent occurrence that we must quickly and swiftly um, undo. Now, further, anybody who imagines that the forces of organized violence in the United States or Western Europe or a good deal of the country could be toppled tomorrow if only abolitionists were more impatient would have to show me like their plan of action because I don't think that can happen either. And yet making the world that we want, which people are doing in so many different ways, brings together, I think, kind of two, um, at least two, um, pretty powerful strands of human self-organization. Well, let's say three. A human self-organization and activity um, from the last couple of centuries, at least. One of those strands is communism, small c. And sometimes the small c is realized through big C, communist parties. One of them is the kind of serious anarchism that, you know, produces um, really strong and vibrant self-organized communities. And the third, I'm going to say, perhaps unpopularly, are the liberation faith movements of a wide variety of, of types. So not necessarily monotheistic, but not, not monotheistic either. But that these, these strands just keep coming together and forming the possibility for things like, to go back the, to go back to my favorite example of recent years, the MST to do what it does. That, to me, is what abolition should be. It's a, like it's a normative claim. 
that abolition isn't a party. It's a way of thinking about the world that then gives us the ability to see what people already do and figure out how to make more of that happen. I mean, I guess there's a kind of um, historical irony of sorts because the language that most people on the left take as a source of their vocabulary to talk about revolution was, of course, not just forged at the time when abolitionism, calling itself abolitionism and calling itself not gradualist, but immediatist uh, abolitionism was was so critical, right, to scholar activists of the mid-19th century. Uh, you know, Marx um, uh, writing for the New York Daily Tribune has one of his articles where he basically just uses the article to uh, reproduce a speech by uh, Wendell Phillips on the liberation of uh, uh, enslaved people in the West Indies, for instance. Even more so, the uh, all of these um, often tiresome uh, scholastic debates about Marx and Hegel are rather quickly resolved once one sees that Marx uses uh, a, a term from Hegel, which is generally given a kind of conser conservative or conservationist or reconciling notion, Aufhebung, which is the same term, uh, that and another term, Abschaffung, that are used to talk about the abolition of slavery. And, and Marx links that directly to the abolition of, uh, of private property and the abolition of all sorts of other uh, interlinked institutions. And of course, uh, he and all sorts of myriad uh, uh, activists and thinkers uh, from all wings of what was, you know, international, you know, working people's movements, etc., face these very issues for, you know, a hundred and, uh, and 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 some more years. Right? Uh, the question, you know, that you pose is also that the question that was the practical question of transition, right? What do we do with our banks? <laughs> what do we do with our highways? Or indeed, you know, very significantly, what do we do with an entire material world that has been generated by, is reproduced by, and uh, enhances the devastation of our planet through fossil fuel consumption and all of the social relations that accrue to them, right? You know, the, 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 the form of the problem you just raised about uh, prisons is not disanalogous from the form that, that we pose about other dimensions of contemporary capitalist society. Of course, those, those dimensions have different materialities and different temporalities and are also interlinking and interlocked with each other in all sorts of ways. Um, but the problem, I think, still remains not just that of what we intend by revolution within this kind of network of ideas and experiences and histories, but also going back to the to the example that uh, uh, Ruthie raised regarding the prison building in, in, in New York at the moment, the question of exactly what those non-reformist reforms would look like, right? And already in that formulation by Undergortz in the late 50s, those non-reformist reforms are not just judged by their consequences or by how they fit into a broader strategy. They're judged by the fact that people are, the people concerned are directly in a 
collective or mass sense involved in them, right? So I think that's also really, really crucial uh, that we don't take a view that just simply what would count as revolutionary in terms of its effects without thinking about those problems of the transformation of of everyday life and experience that, that goes along with it and the making of the kind of collectives that can engage in uh, the revolutionary or communist or abolitionist politics. And I think the, the ways in which uh, solidarity, uh, you know, is, is mapped out in the very concrete, seemingly local, but actually internationalist struggles that Ruthie's uh, looking at in a number of uh, passages and, 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 and articles in the, uh, in the book are really kind of exemplary to think with, right? About what, you know, what would it look like, right? What it would look like for seemingly fragmented, seemingly disparate people to come, to come together in determinate places, right? To engage in processes of dismantling that are processes of building something else, right? You just said that my question, really interestingly, that the, about the, the immediacy of abolitionist demands and the long durée and slow pace of the struggle that that it raises, that it refl- that it reflects or echoes these fundamental longstanding questions about the transition to communism, and relatedly, I'm thinking one might be forgiven for thinking that abolition might be another way to talk about communism. Totally, without a doubt. You can you can use that for the intro to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, quick follow up on that. Then, why 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 abolition? Why not just communism? Well, you know, I didn't dream it up, but why why not just communism? Given that so many of the people who um, came together to quite energetically in the nineties to to launch this aspect of the contemporary. Um, abolition movement came out of communist formations. It was always right there, and I, I, I imagine, and I've never really, you know, talked with my comrades about it. But I imagine um, one reason it was that we already knew, and I've actually written about this a bit in one or more books. We already knew that many people are really deaf to the word communism. Um, and then I forget who said it. Was it Bolivar who said anti-communism without communists? Somebody or other. But anyway, that, that, um, anti-communism, you know, continues to be so lively in the United States and, and many people who, as was the case in the past, would rapidly, uh, embrace all of the aspects of communism they might learn about if somebody told them all this stuff without using the C word uh, are not unlike, uh, I think, many people today. Although I, I do have hope that younger folks are, are, are quite enthusiastically becoming curious um, about what communism is. So those are a couple of the whys um, that that people turn a deaf ear and that people think they know what this thing is and think, therefore, if they listen, think, therefore, that they should stop listening because this thing is not what they want. I felt, I just accept that when Ruthie mentioned the date 1451, it did make me think that 
yes, but also in play in in you know in other places like uh, here, I feel like British Columbia only became a province. So this is the province that's at the extreme end of extractivism, of a kind of terra nullius version of settler colonialism, and is also experiencing climate change at an exacerbated extreme rate. So that's, you know, another thing that is happening here, that it actually only became a province and joined Confederation in 1871 and sort of formed as a province maybe 10 years before that. So there's also sometimes a feeling as we acknowledge that we're on unceded land, and by doing that, we call into question very explicitly the legitimacy of colonial sovereignty and the private property relations and everything that flows from that, you know, that, yeah, maybe it's old, but there are also, uh, you know, these, these moments happening where there's a possibility of unsettling. And that is only happening now because of such long, that long arc of struggle and resistance. And so I, I, I find, you know, thinking about abolition really helpful and generative because it holds these different temporalities together. And I think that that's absolutely vital in, in terms of trying to think about how change happens and how we make change. I'm not thinking as something as like lofty as revolution, but just transformation, you know, like radical transformation, let's say, um, to get away from the Perry Anderson baggage of thinking about revolution, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, I think, I think that's one aspect of thinking through the concept of abolition and the practices of abolition. Again, it holds together different temporalities and it also holds together the conceptual and the more abstract with really the daily lived practicalities, the, the not practicalities, but the, the everyday, you know, and that, that kind of organizing that is totally unglamorous and tedious and difficult and involves a lot of, you know, communicating with one another and, you know, all of that kind of work. So, um, yeah, it's a capacious political idea and practice that is, yeah, really incredibly generative. Well, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Alberto Toscano, and Brenna Bandar, thank you all very, very much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks a lot. Brenna Bandar lives and works as a law professor on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples and is the author of Colonial Lives of Property, Law, Land, and Racial Regimes of Ownership. Alberto Toscano teaches at Simon Fraser University and is the co-director of the Center for Philosophy and Critical Thought at Goldsmiths at the University of London. He is the author of multiple books, including Fanaticism, On the Uses of an Idea, and is co-editor of The Sage Handbook of Marxism. Ruth Wilson Gilmore organizes with people around the planet, teaches at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and is the author of Abolition Geography, edited by Brenna and Alberto, Golden Gulag, and Out This Fall, Change Everything. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, 
the political state represents the table of contents of man's practical conflicts. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Mario Solomon. Our senior advisor is Fia Rio Francos. A very big thanks to Ben Maybe and Mia Inoue for their help in prepping for this interview. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling people they should listen to the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.